0: 1 Corinthians 13 is where we'll be. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Well, this is one of the most difficult sermons to preach. If there was ever a text where I really, really felt like a hypocrite. This would be one. If there was ever a text where I just felt like, boy, do I fall short, (laughs) Uh, where I'm going to be preaching to myself just as much as preaching to anyone else, this is one of those texts. Now, it's always true that in some sense I'm up here as a hypocrite. There's always some sense in which I fall short, but especially today, (laughs) I think... God for the fresh conviction that has come through the study of this text this week, and I hope for you too that you'll also experience the same refreshing conviction. Words, The words refreshing and conviction often don't go together, do they? Well, maybe today you can experience that with me. We're going to be defining love today, if you have your bulletins, please take them out and follow along and take notes. We're defining love in our text, in the original language. Each one of the words that's describing love in our passage today is a verb. Now, we've translated this into English in a lot of uh, adjectives, patient and kind and so forth, but you could say love acts patient, love acts kind, so on and so forth. These are verbs. And we're talking about how love confronted us in the gospel, first of all, how Jesus demonstrated this love perfectly in every way, but we're also studying today, seeing today, how love can and should manifest itself in our lives. This text, despite what you may have heard before, this text isn't about marriage. This isn't the wedding text, though it's often used for weddings. But if if you've been tracking with us through 1 Corinthians, you know that Paul's not talking about marriage and relationships generally speaking. He's not talking about weddings, but he's talking about love in the church. He's talking about the love that we've come to know through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's talking about the love that we're called to demonstrate, the love that we're called to show to those in the church. The Corinthians, you could say, had a a deep illness. They were divided in so many ways. And this is Paul writing the prescription for their illnesses. He's taking out the prescription pad, and here in chapter 3 where he's talking about love, well, this is the solution. This is what will solve their issues. Depending on how you count them up here in these four verses we're looking at today, verses 4 through 7, we have about 16 different descriptors of love. You can see in the notes that I've grouped them into 10. I've paired some of them together. And as we go through these, I want to not only give you a definition of these things, but I want to look at some Old Testament examples. I want to look at the life of Christ, the teachings of Christ. And I want us to reflect through some questions, some some thoughts about how this love is to show itself through us now as those who have been redeemed. We sang together, when I surveyed the wondrous cross, that line, Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Now we recognize that we don't receive salvation by working through love by showing love. If you had to show love through your life, you wouldn't be saved huh. because you, there would be a standard met that you couldn't or a standard presented that you couldn't meet. It's perfect love that earns us salvation and it's not our love, it's the love of Christ. And yet, in response to that, as we come to know that Christ did show perfect love when He died on the cross in our place for our sins, what other response could we have but saying, here, Lord, is my life? We want to live for God, and we want to reflect God's love in the way that we love. So let's, without any further ado, let's jump in, and you see the first two definitions of love there in verse 4 are affirmative. Love is patient, it's a positive description and love is kind. These two descriptions are two sides of the same coin. But let's first talk about what it means to be patient. When we say that love is patient, when the Word of God tells us that love is patient, this is talking about bearing long with people. Not necessarily circumstances, but with people. Even, wait for it, difficult people. (laughs) Patience is bearing long with people, even those who are difficult. And this is all the more emphasized in the face of an offense, when someone offends you and everything in you wants to reject patience for the sake of retaliation. Love says, be patient, to bear along with somebody, to not retaliate, but to be truly patient. In Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this about being patient with one another in the church. Paul writes to them saying, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he describes it here in verse 2 when he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, that word tolerance has been so hijacked today, hasn't it, to mean so many other things. But this is loving tolerance in the church. It's humble and gentle patience with one another. As you look around the room as we gather together, humble, gentle patience. Down in verse 7 of our text today, 1 Corinthians 13, 7, you see there are four things listed. Look at the first one and the last one. Love bears all things and love endures all things. This has to do with patience, doesn't it? We hold out for one another in great hope. We're patient with one another. And God has patience. Isn't this amazing? God is patient. He doesn't have to be. (laughs) We certainly don't deserve God's patience, do we? But God is patient. How often do we see in the Scriptures where it says God is slow to anger? What an amazing thought. He's slow to anger. Remember when Thomas declared in the Gospels, he said, unless I see the Lord for myself, I will not believe. And then he had that moment with Jesus later where he felt his hands in his side. You may have forgotten that eight days passed between those two moments, between Thomas saying, I will not believe until I do this. Eight days later is when he felt Jesus. How patient was Jesus with Thomas? (laughs) Thomas, the moment he said that, should have just been zapped, right? (laughs) Refusing to believe, but he was patient eight days later, and he even obliged in kindness. Think of Jesus with Peter denying Christ three times. And then he went on in the book of Acts to be this man of God, used by God in amazing ways in building the church. He didn't deserve that. I read in a commentary a story about Abe Lincoln. One of Lincoln's earliest earliest, uh, political opponents was a guy with the last name Stanton. And we look at our politics today and say, man, it's getting ugly, we're getting really harsh and ugly. They were really ugly early on in American politics. This guy Stanton said of Lincoln, "Why would anybody try to go to Africa to see a gorilla when you could just go to Springfield, Illinois, and meet Abe Lincoln?" <laughs> Was there are there gorillas in Springfield, Illinois, Wayne? Big ones. Oh, big ones. Okay. <clears throat> well, this man, this man Stanton said, "Abe Lincoln, he's just a gorilla. Nasty, nasty guy." Well, Abe Lincoln, of course, went on to be the president of the United States. And when he was making his selection for Secretary of War, he picked this man who called him a gorilla, Mr. Stanton. And when he was asked why, he said, well, he's the best man for the job. And after Abe Lincoln died, this man who once called him a gorilla said that Abe Lincoln was one of the greatest men he ever knew. That's true patience and love, isn't it? Not retaliating, but thinking fairly, not counting things as offenses where you retaliate, but being patient in love. So think about this. Are you quick to fire back at people? I don't know if anyone's called you a gorilla, at least this week anyway. But are you quick to fire back when someone reviles at you? Do you return reviling for reviling? Or when it comes to this general idea of patience, do you require that people run on your schedule? Hmm. God is so patient with us, isn't He? He's not demanding in those ways where we can so often be impatient? Has the phrase, how many times do I have to whatever, has that come out of your mouth this week? Hmm. Are you angry with people for driving the speed limit? (laughs) Or heaven forbid, under the speed limit? Love is patient. Now the flip side of that coin is kindness. Love is also kind. See, patience is we're enduring something from someone else. Kindness is we're actively doing something for someone else. Kindness is to oblige someone, to oblige someone in gentleness, to be agreeable. And I have to make a note here and make this clarification that kindness is different than being nice. Being nice is very pragmatic. Being nice isn't something we're commanded to do in the Bible. We're commanded to be kind. We're not commanded to be nice. When you're being nice with someone, you're thinking strategically. You're thinking, how are they going to respond if I do this or that? And how can I phrase it or couch it in such a way that they'll feel good? Kindness isn't so much concerned about that pragmatic stuff of their potential reaction. Kindness is doing what is right, helping with truth, whatever that may look like. Jesus Jesus says that His yoke is kind. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, it's the same word that we have here, that word for easy. Jesus' yoke is kind. His yoke is gracious. In fact, the early Christians in the early church were known for their kindness in such a way that the culture called them the kind people. They were known as the kind people. They lived in communities and came alongside each other, obliging one another in kindness. And our salvation is rooted in God's kindness. It says in Titus chapter 3 that the kindness of God appeared and saved us, not according to works that we've done, but by the washing and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is rooted in kindness, God's kindness. In the book of Romans, it says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Isn't that amazing? You see how it's different than niceness. Niceness doesn't lead people to repentance. But kindness does. Gordon Fee, in his commentary, said this, talking about patience and kindness working together, particularly in the life of God. Gordon Fee said, On the one hand, God's loving forbearance or patience is demonstrated by his holding back divine wrath toward human rebellion. On the other hand, God's kindness is found in the thousandfold expressions of divine mercy. We've received both the patience and the kindness of God, haven't we? All the time, in so many ways we don't even realize. Now, being kind and showing love through kindness is especially true when it comes at your own expense. When you have to give something up, when you have to sacrifice something. Wow, that is deep agape love and kindness, when you have to give something up. Jesus taught us that someone wants to sue you and take your shirt. Kindness, loving kindness says, here's my coat, too. That's extreme kindness. It's extreme love. So consider, are you burdened to show such kindness to others? Do you do good at your own expense? Or do you expect others to be kind to you without being willing to be kind to them? We all are hypocrites in this area from time to time, aren't we? Love is patient, love is kind, and Jesus perfectly displayed patience and kindness with His love. We now get a series of negative statements. Love is not this, love is not that, starting with love is not jealous. Love is not jealous. Love is not disappointed in the blessings that fall on another person. This can get pretty twisted. This shows us the depravity of our hearts, the fallen nature of our flesh. When someone else is blessed by God and we get upset, we get aggravated that someone else got blessed because, of course, well, that's the blessing that I wanted. Now, there's such a thing as good jealousy, We see in the Ten Commandments, as God was giving the Ten Commandments to Israel, He declared Himself to be a jealous God. That's why they weren't to worship any other gods. He's a jealous God, jealous for His people, the worship of His people. That's a good jealousy. But this, of course, doesn't have that in view. This has our fallen, sinful jealousy. Think of Rachel in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament. She was jealous of Leah's fertility, her sister. Instead of rejoicing with Leah that Leah was able to bear children, Rachel was jealous, and if you've read that story, you know that didn't lead to a very good decision on her part. Think of the two women who came to Solomon with the baby, and they both said they were the mother of the child. One of the mothers, of course, wasn't the true mother of the child, but she wanted that baby for herself. And Solomon said, okay, well, let's just divide the baby. You have one half and you have the other. And the jealous mother was so jealous, she was willing for the child to die as long as the other woman wouldn't have that child. That's where jealousy goes. Think of Joseph's brothers at the end of the book of Genesis. They were so jealous of Joseph, weren't they? It led them to do so many sinful things. Jesus taught that the deeds of jealousy or the deeds of coveting, they proceed from our natural state, from our heart, from our flesh, and they defile us in our sin. Jealousy defiles us in our natural state. We need to be cleansed from our jealousy. And as Christians, we need to view jealousy as that dog's vomit. We are not dogs to return to that. Because jealousy is a poison. If you start drinking from the cup of jealousy, it will just lead to disaster. So, does another person's blessing aggravate you? Do you find joy in another person's victories? And this is a commission for the church that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. When someone's rejoicing, heaven forbid we'd be found sitting back aggravated and irritated and angry, pouting. Are you celebrating in other people's victories even if it means you lose out? That promotion or that bid, someone else gets it. That child that someone else is able to have. I, I was talking to someone earlier this week and I was tempted to feel bad, but this is the Lord's doing, how could I feel bad about what the Lord has done? I was talking to him, he's in his forties, he and his wife have been trying to have children for 22 years, not only biologically, but through adoption. And it's just not been working out at all. And he told me this after I told him, we have three biological children and we're in the process of adopting two. but this is God's doing. How could we be jealous? How could we be upset? How could we shake our fist when this is the Lord's doing? Someone else gets that inheritance that you had your eye on. Love's not jealous. Love's not jealous. Have you said to somebody lately, I'm so glad this happened to you and meant it? (laughs) It's easy for us to say it and not mean it, but let's mean it and let's say it. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice. Love is also not braggy or arrogant. Love doesn't brag, it says. This is advancing yourself in the eyes of others. This was a major Corinthian problem. (laughs) In the Corinthian church, there was so much competition. Everybody wanted to be seen as the wisest, most spiritual, you know, just the cream of the crop type of believer. That's not what love does. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't puffed up. In fact, that word that's used here for arrogant it's used seven times in the New Testament. Six are in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's that word that's translated puffed up in other places. It means to puff yourself up. It has to do with being haughty or being wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 16:18 reminds us that pride comes before what? Yeah, pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. We read, too, that pride is... One of the seven things that God hates in the book of Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to Him, and pride, of course, is one of them. We have a great illustration of this type of bragginess, this type of arrogance, from one of the parables Jesus told. Turn with me back to the book of Luke. Turn with me to Luke 18. You may remember this parable. If you were here on Wednesday night, we talked about this parable. But in Luke 18, starting in verse 9… Jesus is speaking of the Pharisee and the publican, two very different men as he presents them in this story. See if you can find the arrogance. See if you can find the boastfulness here in this parable. It says in Luke 18, verse 9, He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like all the other people. What a goober. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. As if the Lord didn't know. Verse 13 If you're arrogant, you view yourself as superior, just like this Pharisee, looking down his nose at everybody, going out and flaunting all the things that he's done that he thinks are so good. So do you want other people to know your virtues? Think about that. Of course you do. (laughs) Do you act on it too? Do you get wrapped up with this desire to have other people view you as the real deal? Proverbs says, let someone else praise you, not your own mouth. Do you view yourself as the standard of good? Well, I know that this is good and right to do because I do it. I know this is what everyone should be doing because I do it. Are you the standard? That's to brag. That's to be arrogant. That's to be full of self. Well, tied to that is this next one, that love does not act unbecomingly. This means to behave inappropriately, to be rude, to be harsh, or here's a good word for you, boorish. Probably haven't used that word in a while. To be boorish. So as to incur shame, acting shamefully in your rudeness. We have many prime examples throughout Scripture. Think of Nebuchadnezzar and how he acted with Daniel and company. Very harsh, very boorish. I was reading this week of Rehoboam, and when he became king after his father Solomon's death, the people said, uh, why don't you be nice to us? Your, your dad was pretty harsh. And after taking some advice and making his own decisions, Rehoboam said to the people, you know what? I've got more power in my little finger than my dad had in his thigh, so you better get to work. Harsh, unbecomingly rude, boorish. Making demands of people. It's amazing when you read about the life of Christ, when you read through the Gospels, Jesus was never rude. Not once was he ever rude. Not once did Jesus ever act unbecomingly. And he's in situations where you read it and you think, okay, this is what I would have done, but obviously what Jesus did was better. <laughs> what I would have done was reacted this way, I re- retaliated this way, I would have said this, I would have piped off that especially if I'm the God of the universe and have all authority. But he was never once rude. The Corinthians in their gathering, we've read about this in previous chapters, that when they would come together for communion, as we just took it together, they would come together and they would make even communion a shameful event. They would come together and they would eat and drink to the shame of others who couldn't afford to eat and drink. They wouldn't share with one another. The rich would shame the poor and act unbecomingly. We shouldn't make demands of other people. We shouldn't think less than when it comes to certain people. We should do all that we can to be considerate of others in love. This is what Jesus has done for us. Think of all the consideration you have in Christ, God being mindful of you and serving you. Let's not be unbecoming and make demands of other people using imperatives to tell them to do something for you, to prioritize yourself and to be rude. We shouldn't be that way. And the root of rudeness is found in the next quality love does not seek its own. Love does not seek its own. When you seek your own, that means you're considering yourself to be the ultimate concern. You are the ultimate concern you might have in your translation, love does not demand its own way. Well, demanding its own way is very similar to seeking its own, isn't it? And it's very similar to acting unbecomingly. It's really the root of all of that. And here's an interesting thought for you when you think about, okay, we're not supposed to seek our own, so how are we to see the world? How are we to go about living? Well, as you think about the church that God has built through the gospel of Christ, here we are As an organization, or you could even say an organism because we're a living thing, we don't exist for ourselves. Isn't that a crazy thought? When you think of businesses that are out there and all types of organizations that have been founded, that have grown, and they're seeking to survive, they're truly existing for themselves. But the church doesn't exist for herself. We don't exist to make any sort of financial profit. We don't exist for any man's purposes. We exist for the glory of God. We exist to bring honor and glory to God's name. And as individual Christians who are members of the church, you also don't exist for yourself. You don't exist for you, but you exist, number one, obviously, to worship God in all areas of life and all that you do to pursue God in each area, and also to serve others. Because one of the primary ways that we serve God is by serving others. Consider this verse, one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament, Philippians 2, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not seek your own, we're told, because love doesn't seek its own. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He could have demanded of the whole world to worship Him. He is God. But when He came, He was found serving, giving of His time, giving of His resources, washing feet, not seeking His own. Consider, too, Peter with the Gentiles. You remember the event that Paul talks about in in Galatians where Paul says that Peter understood that, that Gentiles who believed in Christ, they are brothers and sisters. They're part of our family. And he was hanging out with them until the Jews came by. The Jews who didn't like the Gentiles. And then Peter, who was just like wearing a reversible jersey or something. He took it off, he flipped it, and he said, Okay, now I'm a Jew. And now I don't like the Gentiles because I'm over here with you guys. What was Peter doing in all of that? Well, he wasn't seeking the good of others, he wasn't seeking the good of the church, he wasn't pursuing Christ, he wasn't following the example of Christ. Peter was seeking his own, watching his own back. When you read through the Gospels, when you read through the life of Christ, those moments where Jesus got away to be by Himself, aren't those really striking moments? They aren't all over the place. There's just a few spots where it says Jesus drew away to be by Himself. And they stand out so much because Jesus was constantly giving, wasn't He? He was constantly giving others to others. He was constantly serving, giving of Himself. And so those moments when he drew away, it wasn't being selfish, it was just the time he needed with his father, and they stand out because he was so unselfish, he was so selfless in the way that he lived. So are you upset when you're not served? Remember, he did not come, Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. Are you upset when you're not served? Are you seeking your own? Love mentality is slave mentality. We exist not for ourselves. That's the mentality of a slave. The mentality of the owner is, you exist for me. And when we start looking around at our family, at our church family, at the world, as they all exist for me, for you, whoever you're putting at the center of the universe, you've left that servant mentality that Jesus so demonstrated. Love does not seek its own. And love is not provoked. The next one we see here, love is not provoked. To be provoked, of course, is to be irritated or exasperated by a perceived offense. And I want to slow down and and have us dwell on this definition for a moment because there's a lot to it. Love is to be irritated By a perceived offense that God is not offended by. That's an important part of that definition. Love is to be exasperated, frustrated, aggravated, or being provoked is, to be exasperated by a perceived offense, something that God's not offended by. Now, should we be angry at sin? Yes. Should we be frustrated with sin in ourselves and in the world? Yes. That's that's a holy frustration. That's a holy aggravation. But what about those things that just annoy us, that don't bother God? Should we be irritated, exasperated, frustrated, angered by those things? Love says no. Love is not provoked. Think of Saul, King Saul, who was constantly provoked by what God was doing through David. They were singing in the streets. Saul is slain as thousands, and David is tens of thousands. And that just provoked, that just ate up Saul. Now, of course, there's jealousy wrapped up in that, there's retaliation wrapped up in that. But Saul was constantly irritated by something that God wasn't irritated by, that God wasn't offended by. I was struck when I was reading this week at the end of Matthew 9. Jesus performed five healings, back to back to back to back to back. Five healings in a row. And at the end of Matthew 9, after being demanded over here because of this circumstance, and being called over here, and and just being brought about to do all sorts of healings with all kinds of people who were just constantly talking and needing Him, He didn't say, I am done with all you people. i got to get away. I'm going to go find a cave and just sit in the dark for a while. That is not what Jesus said or did. At the end of Matthew 9, after all of that, He stands and He looks at the people and He has compassion, it says, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Only Jesus could do this, and only Jesus could do this through you. He wasn't irritated. He didn't become impatient. He was compassionate for those who needed Him. I was going to read from this book that I left over here. I better... Hi. This is, um, this is from Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, which he is just like a sweet grandpa that tells you what you need to hear, and it's hard sometimes, but it's good. And he has a whole chapter on impatience and irritability. How's that for an endorsement? If anybody want to read about that, <laughs> uh, here's a, an excerpt from that. When he's talking about being impatient i i kind of line this up with being provoked so that's why i'm reading these couple paragraphs parents can become impatient over the slow response to the training of children and teenagers how many times have i told you not to leave your shoes in the family room or when are you going to learn to chew your food with your mouth closed these kinds of slow response to our training can often lead us to be impatient Obviously, the type of impatient expressions I've used as illustrations do not further our training efforts. They only serve to vent our impatience and humiliate the child. Family siblings are often impatient with one another, and it is a great challenge to parents to train their children, both by teaching and by example, to be patient with others. Though I have said that we tend to exhibit impatience within our families, it is certainly not limited to that context. Some Christians are notorious for being impatient drivers. We can become impatient at the slowness of service at a store, at the bank, or in a restaurant. I have to guard against impatience at the post office when I only want to buy some stamps, but someone in line ahead of me has 10 overseas packages to mail. You might want to ask your spouse, your teenagers, a friend, someone who knows you well, to help you identify areas of impatience in your life. And above all, we need to acknowledge and repent of our impatience as sin. So often we are just provoked by those moments where we're impatient. We become irritable, we become angry, we become frustrated, and love is not provoked. Jesus was never provoked. So this means that we need to overlook the ways that people fail us, emphasizing the word us. We don't overlook the ways that people fail God. We can't overlook sin. We shouldn't overlook sin. But no one can sin against you and only you. They either are sinning against you, and in so doing, sinning against God, or they're just annoying you, and love is not provoked. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, a very familiar verse, says that we are to keep fervent in our love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. You could put annoyances in there too. Love covers a multitude of annoyances. I have to read one more excerpt from a book I've been going through lately. This is by Robert Jones, a book on anger, and he says this, I thought it went perfectly with being provoked. My anger with you begins when I mentally legislate how you should act. You shall not let the sun go down on my phone call, email, or text message, but shall reply today. You shall greet me each Sunday the way fellow church members should. Above all, you shall love me the way I want to be loved, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I may or may not inform you of my demands, but if you break my law, I mentally record your violation. I may or may not tell you your offense or reveal my evidence. Either way, I am the star witness and the chief prosecutor against you. I am also the judge, bailiff, and executioner. So I pound my gavel, pronounce my verdict, sentence you to my punishment, and carry out my justice. Love is not provoked. (laughs) Love is not provoked. Eighth, on your notes, love does not reckon evil, or love does not keep account of wrongs. Some of yours might say, love does not think evil. And what all this means is Keeping tabs on offenses made against you. Keeping track of all those things that people have done. Having at least that that mental book where you're just keeping track of things. Love does not do that. It does not keep tabs. This is so often shown by coldness and pouting toward one another. Where we're holding someone's sin against them, even if they've asked for forgiveness. You can think of the other brother in the prodigal son parable. The prodigal son returns, the father celebrates, they're all going inside, and Jesus made a point to say in the parable that the other brother refused to go inside. You know, he was thinking, but he did all these things. I didn't do all those things. He did all those things, and I'm going to throw a fit. I'm going to pout. I'm going to make sure people realize that I'm not in there with the rest of them. Love doesn't do such a thing. This also has to do with avenging. Think back to Genesis chapter 34, I believe. Levi and Simeon avenging the sin committed against their sister when they went out and wiped out a whole town. Well, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. We are not to keep tabs on other sins and then seek our own vengeance. By contrast, think of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, At the end of Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was being stoned to death, the last words of Stephen is he prayed that God would not hold their sins against them. Isn't that a loving heart? That's a loving heart. To care about that, their relationship with God, let alone what we might expect out of someone. In Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 38, Jesus taught us this. Talking about being merciful and not counting other sins against them. Oh, no one's there. We're going to turn to Luke 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 36. Turn with me, Beck. We've lost our technology for the moment. Now you have to remember where stuff is in your Bible. That's good. Luke chapter 6, verses 36 to 38. Jesus starts off with this amazing instruction. An awesome instruction in Luke 6.36 when he says, Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Now there's some weight to that instruction, isn't there? Now look at verse 37 with me, Luke 6.37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And here it is, for by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. We need to remember that as we go about living this life and deal with people who will sin against us, especially if you're married to them. (laughs) Love keeps no record of wrongs in this sense but love covers a multitude of sins. So consider this, answer this question in your heart. Do you remember the evil that's been done against you? And of course, there are some things you can't forget, but are you actively holding on to certain things? Have you become bitter? Is it eating you up inside? Does it affect you? Holding on to someone else's wrongs and refusing to truly let go? it will eat you up. And you would do well to be reminded of God's kindness toward us. Joseph's back. So let's look at Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, where it talks about God not keeping tabs of our sins. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If God was to write down all that stuff that you did wrong this morning, who could stand? If God was to keep a running tab and hold these things against you, you'd fall. You couldn't stand. But in order that you would know the power and grace and mercy and love of the Lord, you're forgiven, that you would fear Him and fear Him alone. Love does not reckon evil. Love also does not rejoice in sin, but it rejoices in the truth. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. Love rejoices in the truth. This means that love has its affections aligned with Scripture. Your affections are to be in line with the Word of God. That's what it means to rejoice in the truth and not rejoice in sin. Think of all the ways this has become twisted in our society today. In so many ways, we're living out... What Isaiah said when, in chapter 5, Isaiah said, Woe to those who call darkness light and light darkness. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Christians who have come to know the Lord are not to rejoice in sin, unrighteousness, darkness, evil. At the end of Romans chapter 1, Paul's listing off a bunch of sins that we find in the world, sins that we were plucked out of when we were saved by God. And he says that there are some who not only know that these things are not to be done, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. May that not be said of a Christian. We are not to approve or celebrate sin. In Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 11, Paul encourages us in how we are to live in a fallen world. He says, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Wow. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. We are not to take part in those things done in secret, but our role is to expose those things done in secret, to shine the light, not to join the darkness, but to shine the light into the darkness. So much of the Christian life could be pictured like Nehemiah and the crew building the walls, where with one aspect of us, with one part of us, we're advancing the truth and on the other side were were fighting off sin as, as they were there to stop them from building the wall and they had a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. That's the Christian life, isn't it? Building on truth while fighting off unrighteousness and speaking against sin. Think of in Israel in Exodus 32, there was a sound in the camp when Moses was coming down off the mountain. And that sound of the camp turned out to be the sound of rejoicing and singing And they were all standing around a golden calf. Love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, doesn't rejoice in sin. But love rejoices in the truth, and perhaps the clearest expression of that is in salvation and in gospel ministry. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out His disciples, and they were able to cast out demons and do other things. And Jesus says, don't rejoice in this, the fact that they were able to perform signs and wonders. Don't rejoice in this, he says, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And now catch this in verse 21. At that time, he, Jesus, rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father. That's a great Trinitarian verse, isn't it? I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. This is the only place I could find in the Gospels where it said Jesus rejoiced. He's rejoicing in gospel ministry, in souls being saved. And love rejoices in the truth. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness. There are so many ways that we can fall into rejoicing or celebrating unrighteousness. One that came to mind this week is gossip, treating others as a means to your own gain, rejoicing in something that God hates, especially in the church, to divide the church, setting a bad example in the church. Instead, we are to call out sin with gentleness and respect. That's our great aim in the Christian life. And if you're looking for a list of of things that you can celebrate, I recommend Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8 tells us what we are to think on. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is pure. You have all these things in in Philippians 4.8 that it says our minds are to dwell on. So what is the Christian to rejoice in? What is the Christian to celebrate? Those things. The things that God calls lovely and good. And then finally, love believes all things, And love hopes all things. Those two middle phrases in verse 7. Believes all things and hopes all things. Now, ultimately, this refers to Christians hoping in God. We have our ultimate hope in God through all the things of life, all the struggles, all the challenges, all the trials, all the temptations of life. Our hope is fixed. Now, our emotions are not fixed, right? Our emotions are like a, a teeny little boat in the middle of the ocean being tossed all over. But our hope is fixed on Jesus Christ. Our hope is wrapped up in the Word of God that never changes, that never fades away. That's our hope. But there's also more to this, I believe. Believing and hoping all things. This isn't optimism per se, but this is choosing to think the best of things. This isn't, certainly isn't, the Joel Osteen envision it and speak it, and it'll become your reality, and you'll have a great day because every day's a Friday type of mentality. But this is hoping in the power of God to bring about what is right, what is good, what is perfect. And this definitely has an impact on our relationships, our relationships with one another. Believing and hoping all things in our relationships. Means that love isn't cynical. Love doesn't start from a position of distrust. You've probably heard people say, maybe you've said it yourself, you have to earn my trust. That's not a Christian phrase. Trust is given, distrust is what should be earned. We don't start by saying, you have to prove to me that I should trust you. Now, I'm not saying be naive. I'm not saying be a fool, but I'm saying be prudent and believe all things and hope all things. Have that attitude. That's love. Job's friends, aren't they a great example of people who didn't believe or hope all things? (laughs) As Job's friends were sitting around and thinking, okay, Job, let's figure out what you did. (laughs) This is because of you, Job, so we're going to figure it out. They didn't believe and hope all things. John MacArthur, in his commentary, said this. I thought this was just a great paragraph and what we could aim for as a church. MacArthur writes, In our church, we continually try to develop a spirit of mutual trust within the staff and within the congregation as a whole. We believe that each person is dedicated to the Lord and is responsible for serving Him. We believe each person is living in fellowship with the Lord. When someone fails, as we all do, then our desire is to help cover that wrong and to help it be made right. Whenever there is doubt, we would rather err on the favorable side, and that can be so hard for us to do in our flesh. But love believes all things, and love hopes all things. Do you struggle to trust people without any real reason? Consider how love believes and hopes all things. Do you project, perhaps, the malice of your own heart onto another, where you have these things in your heart that you hold out against people and that you devise against people, and you think, well, they're doing it to me, when you're actually just projecting what's in your heart onto them? Love believes all things, hopes all things. Love pursues Christ-like love, lived out in fellowship with people. So, as we consider these ten things, as I've categorized them, love is patient, love is kind, not jealous, not braggy, not arrogant, it doesn't act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it doesn't reckon evil, it doesn't rejoice in sin, but rejoices in the truth, it believes, it hopes all things. We first have to start with, Jesus is this way toward us. You could go through each one of those qualities and put Jesus before, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus is not jealous, and on and on it goes, and it's perfectly true. This is a description of our Savior. This is a description of the Son of God. And we might struggle to believe that because some of you have never known a love like this. This is a perfect love that we just defined here, isn't it? So amazing, so divine, as we sang. And this is Jesus. This is the love we come to know in the gospel. And it's a great encouragement because we fail to love this way, and yet He is this way so we can return to Him. He's there for us, being patient, being kind, not provoked, believing, hoping all things. So that's the first thing we need to remember is that this is Jesus, and this is Jesus's disposition toward us. But secondly, we also need to recognize that as we pursue this love, as we pursue to demonstrate this love, as we pursue to live out the Christ-like love that's been given to us, that it starts in our homes. Sometimes we want to jump to those relationships that are far out, that maybe we see a person once a week or we see a person once a month or whatever, and let's start there. But God has given us these areas of influence, and it starts with those that we're around the most. And if we have this type of love in our homes, being pursued in our homes, if we're striving for this type of love, how amazing would that be? And then, of course, once we have this love being pursued in our homes, we need to consider our church. That's the context of 1 Corinthians 13, is in the local church. We need to pursue this type of love with one another. The Corinthians weren't. Again, this is that prescription that Paul's writing to fix their issues, is the love of God manifested through them. And as we pursue this kind of love in our homes and in our church, we take this love to the world. We take this love out beyond the walls of our church, beyond the walls of our home, and we share the love of Christ with others as He works through us. If we have this type of love, a lot of our problems start to melt away, don't they? A lot of those problems take care of themselves, don't they? If you're not provoked, if you're not keeping tabs on the wrongs of others, that takes care of maybe like 90% of them, just those two, right? And then you go on to be patient and kind, believing and hoping all things. It's the love of Christ to us and through us. And you can't have this love, you can't practice this love, if you're not committed to one another in humble service. You think of all the one another passages in the New Testament. Love one another being a big one, right? Love one another. John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. To love one another, you've got to be committed to one another. You have to seek to serve one another in humble service. Because you can't say, yeah, I'll love on you, but don't ask me to do anything. That doesn't work, does it? It starts from the perspective of I'm committed to you. It's impossible to love if you don't have humility or a servant's heart. There's a proverb that says a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. In all those times that you have failed and you're going to fail at loving in your home and in your church and in the world... What are you to do? What are you to do when you are confronted by text like this and you realize, okay, I've been blowing it. Well, we can make things right, can't we? Forgiveness is a key element of the Christian life. Asking forgiveness from those whom you've wronged. Of course, asking forgiveness from God. And He's ready to forgive. He stands ready to forgive on the merits of Christ alone. When you fail to be a faithful friend, ask forgiveness, get accountability, move forward, get counseling, get help, and move forward because this is about demonstrating the love that we've come to know through Christ and building our brothers and sisters up in that love and showing the world that love, revealing to them the love of Christ by the way that we live. Let's pray. Lord, you are full of love and mercy You are slow to anger, so patient with us and kind. We thank you for all the ways that you've shown us love, even today, just in the the hours since we got out of bed, you have displayed so much love toward us. Have us to see it, to recognize it, to move toward praise because of the ways that you are loving each one of us. We thank you for the perfect capital L love that was displayed in the gospel, that Jesus, being the only human being walking the earth to ever live a life of perfect love without sin, never once failing in any of these ways, that He would desire us, that He would die for us, that He would be our good shepherd. What an amazing, amazing love. God, we ask that as we go about living our lives, as we spend time together in fellowship, as we go home and as we go off to work in the coming days, God, give us a vision of love in those relationships, that we would read through this passage, think over this passage, and that by your Spirit's power, it would be applied to our lives, that people would see you through us, and that you would be lifted up, that your name would be famous because of what you're doing in our lives. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.